Every year, on the second week of Lent, we always read the Transfiguration, either from Matthew, Mark, or Luke, depending on the year. The Transfiguration is often seen as sort of an image or an allegory of prayer. You have Jesus taking Peter, James, and John and going up a high mountain by themselves. Peter, James, and John are the Lord's inner circle. They're the ones who will see him in Gethsemane. They will see his agony. But now he takes them up a mountain so that they may see his glory. And like Peter, James, and John, we also have to go up a mountain with the Lord by ourselves. We have to climb the mountain of prayer. And the mountain is described as being tall and as being set apart. And that is what prayer is. Prayer is a lofty mountain because it lifts up our minds and our hearts from worldly things to the contemplation of God. Prayer, by definition, is simply raising the mind and the heart to God. The necessity of prayer should not be lost. St. Alphonsus, when he was discussing mental prayer, he said, the one who prays will be saved, and the one who does not pray will be lost. And the reason for that is where our heart is, that is where our treasure is. And what we think about often is what we love. And so if we do not lift our minds and our hearts from worldly things, if we do not lift them to gaze upon the divine nature, then we will not love God. We will not know him and we will not serve him. We will get caught up in earthly things and we'll sort of just jump from distraction to from distraction. We will jump from vanity to vanity. And then the final moments of our life will come and we will realize we are appearing before the Lord empty-handed, and then we're in trouble. So we must pray, we must pray early, we must pray often. We must lift our minds and our hearts to God so that we may know him and love him and serve him. And notice also that this lofty mountain, this mountain of prayer is set apart. They go up there by themselves. When we pray, we have to carve out from us all of those distractions. The spiritual writers will talk about what's called the remote preparation for prayer. And the remote preparation for prayer is sort of the way you live your life. If you want to have a rich prayer life, you're going to have to live your life a certain way. And it's a way that is extraordinarily countercultural, admittedly. But if we get used to living a life of distraction, if we get used to living a life of entertainment, then when it is time for silence and it is time for us to spend quiet time with the Lord, we struggle. Our mind starts to jump and we can't focus. That's why you'll notice in the Lenten season, the custom is to have more silence at mass and to sort of tone down the music. It's to help us, help us get comfortable with silence because if we are not comfortable with silence, we will never be comfortable with prayer. My first spiritual director in the seminary, he said, silence is God's first language and everything else is a poor translation. It is in silence that we hear the whisper of God because God likes to speak in whispers subtly, gently, and the noise of the world will often drown it out. So we have to go up the high mountain and we have to be by ourselves. And then you will notice the apostles see our Lord transfigured they see his glory. That glory which the Lord hid underneath his humanity shines forth. And that is the way it is with prayer. The glory which the Lord hides under the appearance of bread and wine. The glory which the Lord hides 
beneath the created world, in prayer begins to manifest itself. When we respond to the divine call for prayer, then what will happen is God will lift us up into his own mystery. We will be lifted up into the mystery of God and we will begin to see and to know and to taste and to experience the infinite mystery of God. We will see his goodness. We will see his mercy. We will experience his love. We will see his glory. We will begin this relationship with our Lord. So we must climb this mountain of prayer so that we can enter into the mystery of God. If we're going to spend all eternity with God, we must have some familiarity with him in this life. And so Peter, notice what Peter does when he sees the glory of the Lord, when he is being lifted up into this mystery of the infinite abyss of the goodness of God, he said, Lord, it is good that we are here. That stands for the joys and the consolations of prayer. The movement that you usually see in prayer is when you sit down and you make a resolution. You say, I'm going to pray more. I'm going to pray my rosary every day. I'm going to pray the stations. I'm going to take a holy hour. I'm going to read scripture. And you begin to pray and you respond generously to God. He will give you certain joys and consolations. And the reason he does that is to encourage you. He's saying you're doing a good thing, and I want you to continue to pray. So here is some consolation. Here is some joy. Here is some peace. And it fills the soul sort of with motivation. But then at some point, that consolation ceases, and prayer becomes dry. And our first impulse in dryness is always to run from it. We are like Israel in the desert. When God had led Israel out of Egypt, they go out into the desert, and then they begin to hunger and to thirst, and their first impulse is to say, thank you, Lord, let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to slavery. And that's the same response that we often have in prayer. We receive dryness, and we say, no, Lord, I'm going to go back to my former way of life. We must resist that because ultimately Israel had to get to the promised land by going deeper into the desert. You don't escape the desert by going back. You must go deeper into it. You must go deeper into the darkness. Have what spiritual writers call that mystic fortitude. And it's the same thing in dryness with prayer. When prayer dries up and we no longer receive consolation, we should sort of double down on our resolutions. We should be extra faithful because we have to understand what God is doing The consolations given to us early on are to encourage us. But then the Lord notices that the soul starts to become attached to consolation. We start to love the gift more than the giver. And so God removes those consolations, that peace, that joy that we initially experienced, so that we learn to cling not to those consolations, but to him. That's what he did to to Israel. He brought them out into the desert and he espoused them to himself. And he taught them to cling to God alone, to depend upon God alone. And that's what dryness in prayer does to us. It teaches us that we are completely abandoned and dependent upon the divine will and divine providence. And so we persevere, and then we'll reach the promised land. The last thing to notice about the transfiguration is it's temporary. Our Lord went up a high mountain. He is transfigured, and then he goes back down the mountain to carry out the work of salvation, to be crucified, to die, to rise again. That's the dynamic of the Christian life in prayer. We go to our Lord and we receive from him. We receive his goodness, his love, his mercy. 
And then we have to go back down the mountain out into the world. What we receive at Mass, what we receive in prayer, we should carry to the ends of the earth. Because ultimately, the transfiguration was not heaven itself. It was just a foretaste of it. And that's the same thing with prayer. We begin to experience the goodness and the mystery of God. We go back out into the world. And someday, on our deathbed, the Lord will come to us and say, Receive the reward which I have prepared for you for the foundation of the world. And then we enter into the mystery of God and the kingdom of heaven.